Hey folks, this is the Contextual Insurgent Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith. I'm an activist, an analyst, a writer, and a sensemaker. I'm a Republican, a former SFGOP Central Committee Delegate, where I was the Deputy Vice Chair of Communications. As California GOP endorsed State Senate candidate, where I managed to win 11% of the vote in San Francisco, which, trust me, is better than average. I've also been involved with the firearms community and Second Amendment rights. I was on the cover of Time Magazine in November of 2018 for the Guns in America issue. But I'm probably best known for my free speech activism and facing off with the hard lefties like Antifa in California and the Pacific Northwest since 2017. The general topic of this podcast series will be politics in the current culture war as seen from my unique, rather hands-on experience and knowledge. But I also intend to include a practical element focused on giving you the conceptual tools to build towards true grassroots, nonviolent political change. You may have noticed lefties usually seem to get what they want regardless of how elections go. I want to help you change that. You can also sign up for my Substack newsletter at contextualinsurgent.substack.com. I have a weekly newsletter that looks back at some of the highlighted stories of the week and gives you some feedback and analysis of what's happening. If you'd like to support my work, I have a Patreon at patreon.com backslash eesmith4. That's the number four. I also have a cash app at dollar sign eesmith4. Again, that's the number four. For the cost of a mocha frappuccino once a month, you can support my work, which is ultimately about helping you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Contextual Insurgent Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 2. The season format is more of an educational and analytical series of podcasts where I try to choose a particular topic and have more of a long-form deep dive where I try to pull out particular lessons that I think are useful for us today versus the Daily Insurgency podcast, which is a semi-regular podcast, more riffing on current events, and more casual and free-flowing. Today I'm joined by Mike Treat of Condition Orange Preparedness. He is the co-owner and lead instructor. He's a former corrections officer, private security. He does training and consulting. Someone basically who has some experience in the applied violence industry and He's joining me to talk about the Floyd riots in Minneapolis. He actually lives in Minneapolis, so he witnessed a lot of the things that happened uphand. And with his background, it gives him some rather unique insights. So I'm excited for him to join us today. Hi, right, Mike. Thanks for joining me. I'm glad you joined my podcast and you know came on here to talk about your experiences in Minneapolis. It's so many people in the last year or so, especially in 2020, have experienced a lot of civil unrest. It's obviously been a major thing. And but not everyone has had really the background experience that, say, you or even I have to really kind of analyze what we've seen. And I'm really curious. I'm really excited you came on to really help me understand and help my audience understand a lot of what's going on here. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation where we can kind of like we can talk and like put our our heads together and share our experiences. But before we really dive off into what happened, like the day with the Floyd riots and all that, can you give us a little background on like Minneapolis and like the socio-political uh, environment and maybe like how, how was, how was the pandemic? Obviously the pandemic really goosed a lot of things that happened last year. It really turbocharged this stuff. Can, can you help us understand like what the city's like and you know, how the pandemic and the economic dislocation really affected all this? So it's, it's interesting because you're one of the very few people who've ever actually asked that question about the background of the city. Um, <laughs> well, it's so important. I guess what people want to talk about this stuff, but they don't ever really, 
these things don't happen in a vacuum. And that's one big thing I've always been harping on everyone. Well, you know, at the root of it is a lot of uh, the history of the background. The the actual community I live in is called Longfellow. Um, it's a, you know, it started off as a working class, uh, middle, middle working class neighborhood uh, nearly 100 years ago now. It was also one of the neighborhoods where um, one of the communities in America, in North, in the Northwest, where you had um, interracial couples. Um, the uh, so it's a very diverse area, um, and we had a lot of people who would come here because they could live in this community, and you know marry who they wanted to be with, who they wanted to be with, and so there was that. But also the physical ge- geography of the city is very divided up. The Twin Cities, specifically Minneapolis, is a very diverse place, uh, very rich cultural, ethnic, uh, racial diversity. Um, you know, the one of the one of the things I've always said is I've never traveled the world, but the world has traveled to me. Yeah, right? that's the beauty of living here. That's one of the cool things we've got going on in this city. Um, but the downside of it is the really ugly side of it is if you do the historical research on our area, things are very redlined by that. Uh, we have communities and neighborhoods that are physically blocked off by highways, rail lines, um, the like. This goes, the, the area I live in was actually once upon a time, a uh, was land that was owned by uh, the railroads. And uh, there were a lot of these lots that were owned by the railroad companies, employees could buy the houses. Um, so, you know, it was just like anything, it was the industry brought the population here. Uh, and, and it brought a lot of people who this were either immigrants or they were, you know, economic uh, immigrants from 100 years ago. But um, there, but each little area is very isolated, and that's what we mean by redlining here. Um, you know, we have interstates that block off and wall off entire communities, and those will be socioeconomically uh, either, you know struggling or they're doing really well people obviously they you know we have the suburbs you know like but even looking at like the twin cities itself the interstate system runs in a loop around the 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 two cities themselves that actually played a factor uh during the riots later on um i'll I'll get into that it was just and how they control the movement of people going from one part of the city or the other depending on where they live yeah Um, yeah i've seen the same thing i've seen the same thing with that like a, a public transit and transportation and you can start to see like disruption pop up along those lines. It's like people are, mm-hmm. you know, flowing where it's the easiest to go and places that are sort of blocked off or not. Um, yeah. yeah, that's, that's a really, I'm, I want to definitely look forward to talking more about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and we have, um, and I, and I really want to get too much into the cultures. I'm actually saving this for a book I'm writing. Oh on yeah. This. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. But, you know, we, but we have, again, um, we had this, this thing where um, there, the people who had a lot of, with the pandemic, that really, that, that was the start of a lot of this stuff. Um, people, you know, are treated a little bit differently or are handled differently in some of the communities that we have than others. You know, we're not, I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat that. It's just, that's the truth. Um, some areas do have higher crime. I live in one of them, you know. Uh, you're more likely to be a victim of the crime or um, or you'd be the target of a, a heavy-handed investigation, you know. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but those are the social conditions and then the economic conditions change with the pandemic coming along. 
And suddenly you have, you know, policies and, and, and executive orders given to us, you know, from our, our state you know, leadership uh, that said, well, you can't, you know, run this business or that business and then top that off. This is a very sports oriented place. We have all these major league sports teams and all of a sudden we don't have that distraction. We have all these little microbreweries, all these little cultural distractions that we have. Those are all closed up and gone now. And it's like, well, and then it, and then the weather was perfect. Memorial Day weekend, the weather was perfect. Like, and people had nothing yeah. to do. Yeah. And then we had this tragic event happen and it just like, we knew something was going to happen at some point. We just didn't know what or what would be the, you know, the catalyst for all that. And unfortunately, that was what happened, you know, on Memorial Day, uh, May 25th. Uh, yeah, so no one... run through that day for me, like what you saw. And like, you know, obviously, I, I doubt you were like right there, right in the middle of it when everything happened. But like very quickly, you know, it's, obviously it seemed to the disruption and the civil unrest seemed to take over the whole city fairly quickly. Um, if you can't like run me through that day and, or, you know, when you first started hearing signs of trouble and just, just, you know, kind of just on your own, what you think is really important. Mm -hmm. Like what comes to mind with that? You know, the one thing is that um, we kind of knew there would be a protest for sure uh, because we have had some high profile um, officer involved shootings in Minneapolis, um, you know, go back to 2015, we had uh, the uh, police-involved shooting of uh, Mr. Jamar Clark. There were no, you know, convictions in any of that. Then, uh, of course, in the neighboring uh, city of um, Falcon Heights, which is a suburb of St. Paul, it's where there are state fairgrounds, is that we had you know, high-profile shooting there of Philando Castile, um, and that actually led to a trial uh, of you know Officer Yanez. And that was nationally publicized, you know, high-profile trial. And then, of course, uh, we're looking like three years ago, uh, we had the shooting of Justine Damon um, by a former officer of, of North, uh, the Minneapolis Police Department. And that actually led to the first conviction. So these things were kind of snowballing, as they were. And then on you know, Memorial Day, May 25th, you know, we had the death of Mr. Floyd, you know, while being taken to police custody or after police custody. That hasn't gone to trial, so I'm not really going to comment too much on that right now. But, but we knew there would be community response to that. We knew there would, there would be at least protests because we had this before. Uh, we, you know, where people would um, go protest and shut down or close, you know, a section of an interstate. Um, you know, we've seen this all over the country the last few years. What we did not predict was that things would escalate to what they were. But we kind of we kind of suspected like, yeah, this could blow up, but would be contained and isolated. And it was, the thing is these things don't just happen all of a sudden, you know, um, they don't yeah. just kick off and in 30 seconds, you know, you're in full blown riot windows getting broken, like a edited, you know, screen clip job in a movie, right? Yeah, <laughs> this stuff yeah. builds up over a couple days. And that's what happened was it, you're at this point, you, you have to realize if you're the frog in the pot and the water is being turned up, to a boil right and uh, oh yeah the actual the the moment when this actually sparked off into the riots that we all saw and then spread throughout the the country and even overseas it turns out um was about uh i would say right around about 5 45 central time on wednesday may 27th i know this because i was out running errands and picking up some items from a hardware store for a project <laughs> that was trying to finish 
And I thought, okay, well, I need to see what this looks like. Is what's the crowd look like down there at the third precinct where this is the second day of protesting going on? There, the first night of protesting was uh, the day after on, on Tuesday, the twenty-sixth, and there was there was this was a group that marched from a vigil from where Mr. Floyd uh, died or at his memorial now to the third precinct, which is about two miles away, and that crowd grew and then. Um, on that Tuesday night, they had, they began throwing things at the police, the spray painted uh, a couple of things, just, you know, it was minor property damage, but the next day um, the, the crowd swelled. And what I saw was a lot of families and just a lot of people coming down who were legitimately protesting. They had signs. They weren't there to tear up anything, get violent or anything. Um, but there's a big commercial center around there. And so they're using, you know, the empty target parking lot and Cub Foods parking lot. Um, there's also a lot of development construction going around, around our area as well. Uh, there's a big population boom. So we have this commercial stuff going on as well in the middle of all this. So in this one little watering hole of uh, this intersection at, at Minnehaha and East Lake Street where the third precinct is located, that focal point, uh, everybody's protesting there and the police have put up barricades and, and, um, and a one point I'm turning the corner and I'm just trying to skirt the crowd and get back home two miles away on my usual route. And I screwed up and should have taken an alternate route, but I ended up right in the middle of traffic blocked in as I hear booms going on and it's flashbangs and, and uh, tear gas being deployed. And there was a line of uh, Minneapolis bicycle and horse patrol who were blocking that egress to get home down Minnehaha Avenue. Now, at the time, I didn't know what they were going to do. I was more worried about what they were actually doing tactically than the crowd I was in, because at that point, the, most of the people in that crowd are protesters, and they're just there kind of – it's funny. This actually was like a social thing at first. It looked like a street festival, uh, like an open streets thing. You know, and I saw people out there who were, like, selling ice cream and, <laughs> you know, pedal, yeah. pedal bikes and that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, tear gas is going off, and there's flashbangs. Like, well, wait a minute, when does this turn peaceful? Well, as we know, somebody will throw something at the police, and there'll be the, you know, the, um, the provocateurs in that. But trying to get out of that, you know, you're left with a couple of options. Like, well, either sit here and wait to see what happens, or try to find a way out. And I'm driving in a, a van, you know, so I did a little tactical U-turn and had to go right back towards the crowd that was blocking the intersection. That was when, real quickly, this thing where you see a crowd of protesters suddenly turning into an angry mob and like, yeah. oh, okay, what do you do in that situation? Here's a point I will give anybody. Listen, don't agitate them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the other one, be very patient and very calm. Just, you know, sit still, you, you know, it's a very fluid situation, but uh, keeping your wits about you and just, you're not seeing everybody as like, you know, an enemy uh, or anything like that. A potential threat. Sure. Sure. That, you know, everybody in these crowds are doing their own thing. Um, but, uh, I got out of that situation just fine. It, 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 again, it took a little bit of patience and, and a little understanding and experience with know how crowd dynamics work. Um, you know, it's just from my, my own background in law enforcement and, and uh, corrections work in maximum security prison. But um, when I got home, I, I, you know, I kind of patrolled the area to say, okay, is there anything going on else in the rest of our neighborhood? And, it, and at the time it was very contained and isolated that, that Wednesday evening. Um, and of course it was just watching the, the news, but, uh, the next morning kind of told us, you know, okay, is this a time to bug out, stay or stay put, you know? And again, it was, it was contained to that area that, that Wednesday night, uh, two days after Mr. Ford passed away. 
but the damage assessment the next morning, then we started seeing things where, you know, property was vandalized on like the exfiltration route of some of the rioters. And that was when we started understanding that it's not just protesters, there's different groups involved in this. There's people legitimately protesting. There are um, the people who come to riot and tear things up and the people who come to do it to make a statement or just to, you know, let the beast go out. Um, and then there's a criminal opportunist who see, you know, Here's an opportunity to, you know, steal and vandalize and those types of things. Um, you know, and, and the comparison I would have always made of this is what happened in LA in 92, uh, especially with like a lot of the vandalism and arson. Um, the, the other tragic thing that happened in the middle of this was that there was a uh, shooting uh, up the street, not too far from where I was at. I was already out of the area. Um, I, I like about half an hour after I was out of the area, there was a shooting at a pawn shop. Um, and, you know, the owner, it's, we're, we're a duty to retreat state, but we recognize like castle doctrine that, you know, inside your home yeah. and your business, you have a right to be. But uh, allegedly one of the, uh, there was a rioter uh, or who the, the person who did the shooting said that, you know, they were being invaded and their, their property was, was being broken into and they defended themselves with a shotgun. Somebody died, uh, was, was shot. Um you know, no charges have, have stuck and they're, you know, still investigating this to this day. But um, unfortunately, you know, there was that. And then later on, he found out that uh, not quite two months after it, one of the other pawn shops had burned down. They found a body inside of that place. Um, yeah, I remember been, I remember seeing that. It's yeah. like they keep finding bodies around Minneapolis. So it's, yeah. Cleaning up the wreckage. Yeah, it's um, fortunately, you know, unfortunately, somebody died. People died in this. Um, you know, three, um, including Mr. Floyd, you know, if you, you look at the whole event, but, um, uh, but that's, that's the thing is that if you're looking at the criminal opportunists in this, who are doing things and why are they doing them? Or is somebody grabbing a bunch of stuff from the liquor store, the tobacco shop or the target, you know, you got a couple guys dragging out 10 TVs and they can't carry them all. So they start ditching them in people's front yards, and things like that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I had neighbors and, up the street, you know, who said, yeah, we had guys just pull up and they, they, you know, they need to get a couple more people in the car. So they throw a couple of TVs or, or big ticket items out of their vehicle that they had looted. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just all this stuff, all this merchandise laying all over the neighborhood, you know, it's just like, well, okay. Uh, it's, you know, it's just, it is very sad. The other thing is that there's a routine to all this stuff too, because the next morning you have cleanup crews show up, church volunteers, college kids, and what's funny is that they're doing it to come in and remove graffiti and do, and, you know, and it looks like, okay, they're here to, you know, do this nice charitable thing. And they are, but something that is uh, overlooked or not mentioned is that, yeah, this is also cleaning up an active crime scene with evidence <laughs> that's going away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I remember seeing, um, <laughs> I remember seeing all this stuff and I, I was talking to somebody at a, there's a halfway house uh, and I stopped talking to some of those folks sitting out front a few days after about a week after the riots and, and all this cleanup was going on. And I remember uh, these folks are saying, Oh yeah, there's like the, the cleanup because they're putting like piles of merchandise over there. It was just kind of like setting up tables, even like here, come take this stuff. Cause you know, it's, <laughs> it's stolen, you know uh, <laughs> we don't know who it belongs to, but it's here and somebody needs it, you know, grab it. Um, you know, while we had all these like donation drives going on in the aftermath of the riot, it, it was just interesting. Um, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to like, you know, paint the, the cleanup crews in a bad light, but it's that, it's the thing where the folks are coming in and trying to like help, you know, take care of the community and they're not, they don't live here, 
you know, and they're doing it out of the kindness of the heart. But in the middle of that, too, it's like, well, I understand that, you know, you might have just cleaned up some evidence in an arson you know, that oh, was yeah. either from a writer or could have been, you know, a business owner. I'm not trying to, you know, accuse anybody of fraud, but that is certainly on the table, as we learned in the 92 LA riots as well. Uh, torch jobs, you know, that, that type of thing. And again, I'm not saying that about the business owners, but that is certainly, you know, a potential that that evidence is gone and, and, and understanding this, this stuff. That information is also useful in understanding, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I did they... actually, I did actually publicly wonder, like, when that, you know, it was, it was interesting because, like, I actually mentioned, like, in April before everything got kicked off, I was like, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm, I am deeply worried. I actually described, like, I was talking about some of the dichotomies between some of the reactions from people yeah. in different socioeconomic strata. And I was like, you know, these are revolutionary conditions because, like, <laughs> everyone's, yes. I was like, this is going to get ugly because there's, like, people who are completely have their head up their asses about what's going on in the country and, like, how destroyed yeah. some people are, you know, how, how their life and, and career and ec- personal economy is being ruined. And I did actually like I did kind of publicly wonder like at the beginning of the of the riots, uh, the Floyd riots. I was like, I wonder how many people that have had their livelihoods destroyed by lockdown or just you know, mm-hmm. you know. I I, I didn't mean it, it was probably a little insensitive because I, I shouldn't have impugned a lot of the people, but I did kind of wonder. I was like, I wonder how many people like kind of what you just mentioned. I was like, how many people out there are like, well, you know what, I'm losing this thing anyway because yeah. the lockdowns. I might as well go, you know. <laughs> light it on fire and like hope to get and of course there was a lot of discussions about like what insurance payouts are for that stuff and i was like well i'm pretty sure there's gonna be some massive like federal (laughs) declaration so but you know it was one of the things that you said too and i want to touch on this because i've noticed this and i actually wrote about it um you know you're talking about how there's the protesters and there's people working within the protesters that are using them as cover and that's that's one thing that i've seen over the last four years is there's always these elements, whether they're criminal elements or whether they're politically motivated elements. And this is something people don't really get and it needs to be more understood. They use the protesters as a cover because the protesters, they actually stress the police response capability. And once the cops are just overstretched and they can't respond, those people can basically do what they want to do with impunity because the cops can't, you know, they're just swamped. They can't really do it. And I've seen that in person so many times. And one thing, too, that, you know, I've actually been undercover in training, training classes for protesters and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I don't want to say all protesters are like this because they're not. No. But no. Depending, depending on who does it and what group is behind it, I have actually seen, like, protesting groups have written agreements with, like, anti-fascist and, like, anarchist groups about, you know, we agree not to photograph your face you know, mm-hmm. we agree not to say anything to the cops. Like there's, there's a tacit understanding that like they're all work. Yeah. That very yeah. much like a pact. Yeah. And again, like I, I'm not saying all protesters are like that, but there are some out there that do that. That's an actual like objective tactic. Um, and it's really interesting too. Like when you talked about the, um, the, the protesters were somewhat peaceful and then they turned into an angry mob because the cops started, you know, somebody must have triggered them. And that's a very that's a really common thing. And I wrote I wrote a piece when I was undercover in the black block in Portland. I wrote a piece mm-hmm. for Center for Security Policy mm-hmm. that was advising a lot of law enforcement because um, we work with a lot of cops and everything and, and have classes and all that. So I, I wrote a piece for that. And what I was seeing is something called a dilemma action. 
And yes. this is this is what kind of what happens. It's like you know, cops. There's a model to respond to a riot, but the model that law enforcement uses is outdated. It doesn't really understand yeah. and can't really there's, – there's no understanding of how to – like I, I was seeing so much of stuff in Portland where you know, they would slowly start to turn up the aggression towards the cops, and the cops would respond, and then the cops would chase them into the neighborhoods, and they would start flashbanging and tear-gassing houses, and it was just like – I was like, holy shit, guys. You're like this – is, mm-hmm. this is not working. This is this is like exactly what they want you to do, you know, but I'm seeing echoes of that, like in a lot of things you're telling me. Well, and and interesting that that response um, for the police to, you know, chase, you know, to be chased into a neighborhood. uh, We didn't have that here, which is interesting. What we ended up having was more of a siege. A defense, yeah. The police were put on a defensive posture. Yeah, what happened in Portland was a different stage of that. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's but it's it's kind of a different manifestation, and that was a bit more targeted. But no, go, I'm sorry. Go go ahead. And, well, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting the comparisons in those two because you know what we had here was it was kind of a it was quick and it was very intense. Um, the uh, wasn't the long drawn out sustained uh, action like you saw in Portland, um, but you know. So, you know, like our police officers at the third precinct were put, well, once they were under, before they were under um, unified command, um, and that's, that's our public safety commissioner just, you know, students can't, all, all agencies just kind of become one agency. That's what that means. But once they, once they were at the precinct, they basically, they, it was like a fort. <laughs> they were seized at yeah. a fort. And the belief was that the, um, one of the city council, uh, when the city councilman here in uh, Minneapolis, who, who's the son of actually our attorney general, had said, "Well, look, uh, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not quoting him exactly, but his his point was to look if we have the crowd, the rioters, the protesters, the the mob, even you know, if they're focused on that location and it's contained to that location, then that's better than having a spill out into that immediate residential area where you know there could be you know attacks and assaults and." burglaries and you know and, and other criminal activity which there was some of that there were crews of people driving around you know young men driving around armed up and and you know and that's a whole other you know thing there but um but there was no chasing any of those people and any of those criminal actors into the community you know um which and this is this will probably be a little controversial but were this to really continue in this country um there, it would be like going outside the wire, you know, in, in Baghdad, you know, it's like, well, why would I go into that area that I'm going to possibly run into an ambush in? And plus, as we saw the population swell probably around 10,000 people in like a day or two around here, um, you know, not only is people are staying in hotels, some are actually blending in with our homeless population. We have a, suddenly this boom in homeless population here. And some of the regular people who are in those camps or in our parks around here would move out or, suddenly you'd see other people moving in or those populations would swell. And then also, as I've been learning, is that uh, there are residents, community, you know, people who own homeowners and, and people in our own neighborhood who most likely gave aid and support to these people who come in and did the rioting and trashing at night. And then when they would exfil out, they'd either have a, a route to do their exfiltration out of and go to wherever they're going to rest up and regroup and repair and resupply and redeploy, you know, the next day, uh, usually like, mid-afternoon late afternoon 
Um, but you know, a lot of the stuff couldn't happen without some sort of local support, either directly or indirectly. And it's, um, it's one thing was with looking at like history of, of not just the, the cause or what they're, you know, they're for what's, what's causing this, but also like methods of tactics. So it's, it's interesting that police response, you know, um, with them being on the defensive posture, they weren't going to go on like a proactive military style hunt for anybody. It, it would be just, it would stretch them thin and it would just be chaos everywhere, but containing it like that was about the best option they had. Now I will say this in those initial moments on that Wednesday night, May 27th, the police, in my opinion, had tactical superiority and could have shut that down really, really fast. It would not have been pretty. Uh, wouldn't you know? Wouldn't necessarily result in like deaths or anything like that. We don't want that. Um, but it could have really, really curbed a lot of the the violence and destruction that we did see um, immediately. And, and they did as best the job they could. But also, they were receiving orders to back down. And at one point, the the really the soul crushing moment was that Thursday night on May twenty eighth when the police department with a, that precinct station was evacuated and those officers would pull out there and like, literally we were already kind of on our own. We all, you always are on your own anyway, you know, as far as, you know, police protection, but that really drove home <laughs> to a lot of people in my, in my neighborhood, in my community here, um, who like suddenly were showing up at gun stores to buy out all their stock on top of all the pandemic stuff. People who were like a, a year before were telling me AR-15s are horrible and awful. And the next day they're like, where the hell do I get one of these now? I can't order it online. Like I thought I could, right? I need, I need this gun now. You know, I'm like, okay, what are you, who are exactly you're defending yourself against is my question. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, suddenly, you know, you're scared. Who, who's your boogeyman? And, and they start late. It's interesting. Cause you find out what people are actually afraid of. And I think it's funniest thing is that what people are worried about now, with like civil social unrest in the country, it's that whole othering and demonizing of somebody that, you know, they think they prescribe this boogeyman thing. And it goes back to that, that thing that you were talking about earlier, about like the social isolation, we, you know, we had people who suddenly were on a yeah. scale were marginalized, right. And their lives were destroyed. You just didn't know about it because everybody lives in a bubble. And the moment you can get across. And, and if you think about people in terms of, well, they're my enemy. Okay. All right. Fine. That's where you want to start with it. But, the thing I learned about this, and I knew this anyway from just working in, in the prison system with gangs and, and rival groups, security threat groups, we call them, is that in doing mediations, right? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's one of my things is I've got a little bit of background as a semi-professional mediator between rival, you know, people, two parties who aren't agreeing with each other, arbitrating, um, is that if you can, if you think of someone as an enemy, it's like, okay, well, how best to defeat them and destroy them? I'm like, well, you need intel on them. You need information what makes them tick but what are they most concerned about you know that i think is the biggest thing in this if i give somebody a takeaway is like do, you know have a good understanding uh and information and the other thing this is a real hard one to do but it's a sign of a professional is can you empathize with that criminal actor or that enemy you know and if you can see them as like you know all their fellow human being you know or attributes or traits that the same way that they bleed and hurt is the way we bleed and hurt. And I don't mean to get all touchy feeling kubaya, right? But it's it's understanding psychologically, emotionally, what would drive them to do what they're doing, what's motivating them. Um, and, you know, some of these people, I, I and I'm curious, and you may have seen this yourself with your work, but there's also this, this sense of needing to belong to something, being social creatures. Did you see any of that, like, just with... Because I know yeah. you wrote about like how there were there were groups of people who already knew each other, 
a little cell yeah. click of people and then they would go in and they kind of be that core did you see like they would attract other yeah. individuals and grow that group yeah yeah it's, that's yeah. like the affinity it's an affinity group model is what that's called right. and yeah. it's, it's sort of interesting because yeah. it's based instead of like doing things like we think on the right where it's like okay that's like I'm going to create this thing and recruit people to join it. That's like kind of backwards. Like what you see a lot of times on the left is, you know, especially because left leaning people, but it's, it's not necessarily even really political, but it's, it's because urban areas are more left leaning. Generally you have these left leaning spaces and all these left leaning people in those spaces. And they're like, Hey, we all know and trust each other. Let's go start doing political stuff. So it's kind of backwards from what most people think. It's like, it's a group of friends that already kind of align politically and say, hey, let's go do political actions together. But I actually did see so much of what you're talking about. And this was, you know, I, I talked about this in my Reason interview. Um, you know, I cited like Francis Fukuyama, and he was talking yeah. about um, his concept of like people want to struggle. And if everything is good in society, they're going to struggle against the good things. And yeah. people want to feel belonging and they want to feel like they're fighting for something. That's how we evolved. But one thing I saw when I was undercover with the Black Bloc is, there was a lot of, you know, there are some incredibly intelligent, successful people in that group, but then there's also people that fall in that, that are more marginal folks. And they were looking for that community. Um, you know, when you go, because every time, like when they march in Portland and even if it's like a direct action black block and everyone's in full black and masked up, like they all meet at a park beforehand and there's like a big picnic and it's like, everyone's like yeah. comrade, you know, everyone's like super friendly like there was people walking around with therapy dogs and you could pet the therapy dogs and like they were giving out cake yeah. to people. And it, there's this incredible feeling of community. There. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's honestly really addictive. You know, the whole thing is I can totally see how people, and you know, I, I admit, I'll admit this. Like if my life had been different, you know, I could totally see myself being one of those people. Cause I mean, oh, I yeah. can yeah. see the forces are at work and I can, you know, and I have, been dealing with this for four years now Mm -hmm. and there's a tremendous feeling of having a cause with those people it's like hey we have a community and you know we have a cause and and one thing that doesn't get brought up enough you know they have and they don't understand how important this is most people don't the the bail funds that they have what they'll do is like if you get arrested like let's say you go out and you do an action and you get arrested you're probably in jail scared out of your wits you know and then they come bail you out, you know, they will have a bail fund that will bail yeah. you out and they will meet you at the doors, you know, and they're like, Hey, how's it going? And they'll give you a hug and like, you know, give you stuff and like help take care of you. Yeah. It's almost like in that, in the Goodfellas movie where, you know, yeah. the kid doesn't say any, like, they're like, good job. You know, you got your first pinch and you didn't say anything. It's very much like that. You know, the recruitment process works the same way. So there's a, there's a radicalization pipeline and it's so easy for the right person to fall into that. Well, it's interesting is like, you know, if you look at political left-right divide, I see so many people who are mad about like the bail groups. I see that now. Like, okay, well, somebody just dropped somebody. They got the bail group there. Okay, well, that rioter, that protester, they got bailed out by the bail group. And that whole reception, that whole um, reintegration, the whole being welcomed back in the community. It's like, well, okay, you see this in the world where somebody goes into prison. And if they're part of a gang, okay, they, they have a welcome wagon there. If they're, they don't have any money, they put together a little, you know, collection, a box for, you know, a guy coming in or a gal. Because um, we lock up a lot of women, too. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I've actually worked in both both those, both those settings um, in my career. But 
but yeah, you see this where they're coming into that institution from the outside world inside, you know, there's that welcome wagon, that committee who brings them in. Um, if they're a part of that group or they're, or that, you know, that gang or, or, or whoever it is, or that race or culture, uh, just as ugly as it is, that's how it is. But also coming on the outside of it too, is somebody to meet you out there like, okay, you need a card and you, you know, you're, if you're in parole or you're on probation or, or that, that type of thing, there's a, there's a reintegration, you know, orientation process going in. And then like when you get booked going in the, when you're arrested after, you know, yeah. at a protest or a riot, you know, uh, but then when you're back out, there's that welcome committee. And, you know, well, on the flip side of this, there's the same thing. If you're arrested in a defensive shooting, right? Well, um, you're able to call a lawyer if you're a member of a legal membership service, right? Those exist. Yeah. Uh, you pay, you know, your money to it. Uh, and that's the, that's the, you know, while you're under that stressful situation, like I said, you've you never been arrested. A lot of people never been arrested. Like, I'm sure you saw that. Um, but there is somebody there who is a resource on their behalf to help them with legal, you know, even mental health and logistical uh, issues. So it's like, well, you can't really be mad at somebody for having something in place because that's what they're investing in for that, the success of that cause or that infrastructure. It's on both sides. I, you know, it, it's just, I see that kind of, um, that, that there's, a, and I hate to use the words hypocrisy, but it exists on both sides. And it's like, well, who's right or wrong? I, you know, I, I try to be apolitical about this stuff, but I also yeah. look at the, when you draw those parallels and those similarities, it's interesting that it's like, okay, well, whatever you're criticizing the other side of, are you doing that yourself and why? And if you can understand your why, you might understand it might be theirs. You can't really apply your value system entirely to, to someone else. But again, I look at this like in group dynamics and human nature. It's like what drives yeah. somebody to pick a brick up and throw it through the window. It's like, well, because everybody was misbehaving. And now that um, there was a really good example given by a late uh, friend, a very good friend, a late uh uh, Dr. William April was a criminologist and we lost him here um, last summer. Yeah, so. yeah, but he, you know, he, he, he had mentioned, you know, mm. perfectly, he was, you know, he's a psych, uh, psychologist too. He said, you know, and a psychiatrist, but uh, he said that, you know, when these riots were going on, uh, he said, you know, somebody throws a brick. Okay. Well, now the window drops. Well, somebody goes in the window and two more people go inside that window in that shop. Okay. Well, there's all this stuff. Well, they're taking some, well, I'll take something too, because we're all getting away with it. It's just that whole group momentum. You know, the same thing with like, well, why did these quote unquote insurgents raid the, the U.S. Capitol? You know, they were just there protesting. Like some people were just there to protest and people behind them, a wave of them would push and they got stuck in the crush. You know, I've, I've heard from people who were like, wait a minute, one minute, I was just standing there legitimately petitioning what happened, you know, I wasn't there to get violent. And as I'm trying to get out of there, man, I'm getting like stampeded and nearly killed by people trying to break into the building, you know, and again, you, you know, that's the crowd dynamic, but it's, it's just interesting that um, those things are set up, you know, like, um, so like in Portland, I know this is a thing that we've, we've read about where there were like the, uh, like the snack wagons and the medical street yeah. medical teams have come along. What else did you see that was sort of like the community outreach support groups? Um there's there's it's really interesting there's so much you know portland like the pacific northwest like protesting and and especially like the 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 hard left like black block tactics you know that's like most people aren't aware of the original like antifa in the domestic antifa really started in the pacific northwest the rose city portland antifa is like the oldest 
Ansible organization mm-hmm. in the country. So all that stuff really started up there. Um, and it's really interesting because, you know, like Oregon was like legally a white only state until like the, like, I think like 1940 something. Yeah. It was like crazy. It was like a segregated state, like literally, you know, it was insanely segregated. And that's why it's one of the reasons it's so white now, but like they've got that undertone, you know, of what they used to be. And like, now they've got like this reaction with this hard left, like a lot of these anti-racist punk groups. It's a, it's a real crazy dynamic with all that. But yeah, what I'm really trying to say is they've had these forces that have developed all these, these groups, like you're, like you're saying, it's like they have that. And it's interesting because, um, well, you know, there's like the bail funds. Yeah. There's like actually like legal defense, like the National Lawyers Guild is a big thing. That's national, of course, but they do a lot of stuff for like legal defense for folks. There's a couple of other groups, like local activist groups, like legal oriented activist groups that will like, they will defend mm-hmm. you, but then they will actually like, they're using lawfare a lot now. Yeah. Like they have these, these yeah. radical leftist groups that will start suing people on your behalf if you're a leftist. And you're offended at someone, someone that is, you know, right wing has committed anything that would be considered a tort against you. Hmm. So there's that going on. Um, the snack ban was, and, and this is really wild because there's so much grifting going on up there. The the riot ribs, they had the riot ribs, and that's set up across from the courthouse, and they were giving out free food to everyone. They were raising food, um, like you know, just fundraising platforms. They raised like three hundred thousand dollars. And then they shut down and like left with the money. So there's like another group there now. Yeah, yeah it's it's pretty wild. That sucks. And there's another yeah, there's another group there called like BLM ribs and they're like trying to fundraise and sales sell food and shirts and stuff. It's it's pretty crazy. But they've got that. Mm-hmm. Uh the snack van, you know, um there's a snack van, uh there's a couple snack vans now. I think there's a different person doing it. But yeah, they were like they would get their tires slashed like every other night. And, you know, tires, like, maybe 500 bucks for a set. Like, you know, the cops would run up there on the riot, and they would slash the tires to try to immobilize the vehicle. Yeah. But, you know, they would fundraise $3,000 off of that. You know, it was pretty crazy. The guy would get paid three three grand for that 500 pair, $500, you know, set of tires. Um, so they've got that, but they've got a lot of the, the, the medic groups. And the medic groups are really, really interesting because, you know, they have – they've got people, people that are nurses and stuff like that involved with it, like, paramedics and everything and they're teaching everyone you know a lot of they've really gotten a lot better it used to be they used to be like really crappy with it but you know once you have like 120 something days of fighting the cops every night you know your people start to get pretty everyone starts to be pretty well tuned tuned up but they they do that and they've got these these medic collectives that train people and they pass out like a lot of supplies like water and like you know the saline wash for eyes um they've They've got like the Sudicon wipes they're giving me. They've got carts they towed around with a bunch of cool stuff in there. Um, but one thing they do, and this is sort of interesting because this kind of fits back into the outreach stuff that happens. Like they will actually, like once they drag people into a neighborhood and the cops are like flashbanging and yeah. tear gassing your neighborhood, over the next two or three days, these medic groups will go through those neighborhoods in a form of outreach and they will give out flyers to people yeah. and they'll give out like medical supplies and they're like, Hey, you know, we're sorry about what happened. You know, the vicious fascist cops, here's some medical supplies to help you, you know, some stuff, some masks and everything. And here's some things you can use some, some, some tips to, 
protect yourself next time this happens. Yeah. So, and it's really interesting. It's a big PR victory. Like it's, it's a, um, hearts and there's minds. that. And that's, yeah, very much a hearts yeah. and minds thing, yeah. you know? Um, and the cops just, it, like I said, it's like the, the model that cops have for this stuff is so out of date yeah. that, you know, they actually have like, I, I am, I, I do a lot of online research, of course, and there's a lot of, uh, their secret chats and stuff where they've, they've got like the DH, DHS crowd control manual. Mm-hmm. They've got all these things like the literal law enforcement resources on what they do and how they plan to do this stuff. And they, they've got all it, they got all of it, you know, so you know exactly what the cops are going to do. Um, but they've got that, you know, they, and they've just got all these other groups too. these. And one thing they'll do is they'll have all these little groups of different names and they'll just switch the names around. You know, there's yeah. not this one big top down organization. Um, it gets to be a bit confusing mess because you've got all these various names for groups um, doing things, but, and they're all coordinating and working together. Um, but yeah, they, they've got like a whole infrastructure, you know, they got, again, of course the jail funds, you know, that, that fundraising stuff. It's almost like a whole insurgency infrastructure, really. It, and it's interesting is that everything that you've described, it's like, the, the person who I will say mainstream American, you know, citizen who, you know, they get all their goods and services from an established place, uh, either a mom and pop shop or a corporate chain store in a strip mall or a big box store that's a flagship of a strip mall, commercial property, that type of stuff. Uh, or they're, you know, if they go to the doctor, the doctor isn't like in a uh, health you know, insurance or health provider network, right? Um, same with legal, you know, it was either a big established lawyer and you have the money to retain them or you're part of the legal membership service that, you know, if you have something from, you know, your cell phone uh, contract didn't look right and you call that legal service and they make the call on your behalf, right? It's interesting that all these things that you described that mainstream American would look at this and say, well, that already exists. Why are these people setting up? I was like, well, not everybody has access to that. And the other thing is that, you know, they're, if you look at the, like the, the whole left, right side of this thing, um, one side is doing this as a collective, as like a network of support. And they're like, if you want to think about it sort of in quasi militaristic terms, like they don't need to pick a gun up to go conquer anybody. They just show up with, the things that don't that these people don't have access to, you know, medical care, uh, food, uh, help, even just clean socks, right, and diapers, right, yeah. those little necessities. Because what's but also what's interesting about that is if you're going door to door doing uh, medical outreach like that, um, and yeah, you know, I'm sorry that your your house was tear gassed. Here, you know, here's some plastic and duct tape. Here's how to you know treat those the tear gas, and here's some earplugs for the next time the flashbangs are going off or something, you know, here's what you want to do to, to ready your home for the next time the police are chasing these people into the neighborhood, you know, we're your friend. Well, that's also a good way to find out who might be sympathetic to a cause or who might be fed up. Exactly. And the thing is, yeah. if you're the recipient of that coming to your door, I, and I've told people this cause we, we didn't have exactly outreach, but I prepared some neighbors uh, who asked me about these things. Like, what should we be looking for? Cause I kind of want to trust these people that I don't. My gut tells me, what should I be looking for? I'm like, well, see what kind of information they're asking, what kind of questions they're asking you. Ask them some questions back. You know, have a dialogue. Don't let them in your house or anything. Just, you know, get establish those boundaries up front. But understand, you are also dealing with spies. It goes back to, like, the cleanup, the street cleanup crews. 
that's great to see like, okay, we see what the damage is, you know, we're assessing what the next targets might be the next night. Um, you know, there's spies and everything. Um, we had a lot of donation centers set up and it's interesting too with that is, you know, I'd go drop off, you know, packs of diapers and toilet paper and whatever was on the list of things that people needed. Um, and, uh, and, and it's interesting because it was already on top of all the pandemic stuff and you found out how bad some of your, your neighbors are really hurting. Uh, it's just, they were too proud to come out and ask for help. It's like, Hey, you come out here. We're all, or we had basically like, there would be people with these swap meet stuff. Like, like somebody needed to borrow a circ saw and somebody else needed, you know, a drill press or somebody needed a pneumatic, you know, air compressor to, to, you know, fix their tires or whatever it was, but there was sort of like a loan, a tool loaning library that would set up or something like that. Um, you got to know your neighbors pretty fast. Um, and that was also like community defense was the thing I was asked about a lot, just given my background, my, my, you know, my former profession. And the thing was that I would tell people who have asked me about this since then, including like seminars I've done on this. I was actually just going to ask you, that was what I was wanting to segue Mm -hmm. into is, is the whole community preparedness and community defense thing. It's like, how did, how did your neighborhood respond to this? And were, 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 people able to do something, you know, and this actually sort of goes back into one thing mm-hmm. that I, I actually forgot to mention when I, I was responding is that so much of what I'm seeing is like people trying to build. And that's what I saw. It's like, I actually saw a bit like in the park before they would have a direct action, like a lot of the, the ants for the black block, it looked like a village. Yeah. Like there was tents set up and people were giving out supplies. Yeah. Like I've got a big shield on my wall with a fist on it that they gave me out of the back of a truck. And they had someone standing there that, gave us instruction on how to use it. I mean, it's yeah. one of those things. It's like making it easy for people to get involved, giving them that community feeling. I mean, it really did look like a village. Like, hey, you need water? You know, do you need masks? Do you need socks? You need, they would give you everything, protective gear. Yeah. It got to the point where people were giving out body armor at these things. Yeah. Um, it's wild. But yeah, no, anyway, the community thing is really, really what I was about to get into. I, was mm-hmm. gonna, I wanted to ask you, and I want to hear more on that. I want. Uh, can you tell us like, you know, what you saw community-wise, like community defense, community preparedness, just just riff on that some for a bit. You know, the community defense, um, a lot of that started with individual business owners. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I have kind of a routine route of, you know, businesses that I, uh, you know, coffee shops, uh, places that, you know, are in our neighborhood. Uh, we, you know, for a while, we we're kind of a, sort of a food desert now we have stuff coming in as we have development but we've had like um you know flower shops forests we've got gardening shops we've got like say coffee shops clothing shops restaurants cafes um and then we also were like one of the i think we're like the second or third most bike friendly city in the u.s so we have a lot of bike shops and things like that so those are all like businesses i would frequent and you know get to know the owners i'm a very extroverted person that way but i would talk to those folks and say hey you know what are you going to stick around you know i see your plywood and up the windows are you going to you know leave you know i'm up the street here do you want me to go by and just make sure everything's in place they're like no we're going to stay put or uh the ones who could afford to hire private security would you know um like liquor stores would do that um hiring armed guards and um but mostly everybody, the community has started a lot with the individual business owners. There was one group um, that was on Lake Street in like Bloomington. There's a large uh, Latino population there, but these people had like stores and shops inside of commercial property. 
And there was a lady up there who basically organized these people said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stack cases of water bottles inside the storefronts, the windows where the, the plywood's at. So if they start throwing Molotovs and it burns to that, they're hitting water bottles. It was just genius. They stacked these cases of water, the rafters, and then any armed people would be on the rooftops, just like you saw in the LA riots. And they were vetted and they're like, okay, you don't get up here unless you can show us a state permit to carry the gun that you're showing up with. If you don't have a permit, you got to lock your gun up over here and you can help do fire brigade stuff, medical stuff, runners, whatever. But they literally like turn this little commercial area with a back parking lot, like a fortress. And in the meantime, around them is the state patrol, the national guard going out making arrests and, you know, shutting down all these, you know, rogue activists who are actors, sorry. Um, but then it got into like the residential area after the National Guard showed up and these people were realizing, wait a minute, there, there is nobody out here. And we have like groups of, you know, bandits and thugs drive around and, you know, cars with spray painted and, and, you know, ad hoc tinted windows, no plates stolen or rental vehicles and a drive around just shooting randomly at houses. And then we had people who were like, okay, well, it's after curfew. Instead of sitting in my house, wait for something to happen. What if all of us neighbors get out and do sort of a national night out type, you know, tactic we'll be on a block we're within you know either text chain or they're on signal or they're some of them had like the little balfing uh, radios but they basically had their little signal core and if they saw something they would report it and this is where it gets a little interesting because the business owners standing staying put on a fixed spot versus somebody patrolling their block outside their house now we're not getting into like a home castle defense. We're getting out into like a neighborhood patrol. And if they come in contact with somebody, you know, and, and the law here is that you can't just stop somebody and demand their ID, but that was happening. They were carding people. And the response was either violence, direct in, direct violence or indirect violence later. Like, you know, I know of a case where a group tried to do this and I, I was in communication. And I said, listen, you can't be carding strangers on the street. That's, that's not going to go well. And sure enough, you know, they ended up having, I think, like 20, 30 minutes later, somebody did a drive-by on their house. Nobody got hurt, you know, but there were some bullets fired. And it's like, well, again, you have to know your rules of engagement, that legally what you can do. And the thing is, too, is that the attitude a lot of people have, part of it is just ignorance of the law. And, you know, we, you know, you will be held to the same standards, scrutiny, actually more so if you ever have to use any kind of violence in a, even a self-defense situation in a, a form of civil unrest, we even scrutinize even more than in, in you know, quote unquote, peaceful times. Um, a lot of us saw, though, it depends on the community as well. You know, if you think about like, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm obviously, I'm from, you know, the intro, you, you know, I'm in, I'm in the whole gun culture and community, um, you know, to, to more of a professional involvement in that. Um, yeah. But, you know, but the clientele and the students are people who really eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff. And is the part of that is there is a lot of rugged individuality, right? Um, but forming up like a mutual assistance group, like we talk about in preparedness community, um, you know, either you have that in place ahead of time or you don't. And one thing I saw was, and I would warn some of the neighbors in the community who said, look, if you're bringing, if you're introducing firearms into this stuff and you're out there with somebody else who has a firearm, have you trained with them personally? Have you gone through some stressful training that was conducted by a professional beforehand? Do you know that person well enough how they handle, handle stress and under normal conditions? Or are you kind of questionable how their temper is? Do you, have you really done your homework or how well do you know them? I know you've lived next door to them for 20 years. 
but you know how is it with their argument with their spouse or their, their better half how do they you know what what kind of values do they have have you seen them when they have been at their worst have you seen them handle a crisis because now you're going to be out there in a crisis everybody's in and you all got guns you know and and i always joke as to what i actually teach is real gun control <laughs> and that was that yeah. was a lot of what i was talking about i was like yeah it's you know uh what's your self-control look like in all this and it was interesting is like a lot of the community defense was mostly i'd see like groups of people standing up blocking an intersection like it was national night out or they'd park the cars and block off the streets going into their their block um you know and they would check whoever they they find out who lived there or not uh if somebody didn't you know or they make and it's funny in the middle of all this amazon and ups is still delivering right in the middle of all this stuff <laughs> i don't know if they could, those people hazard pay or what but i'm like man yeah, the, the postal service wouldn't even show up so they you know they cancel you know funny story by the way about the postal service um just real quick i had went in and renewed my post office box and the damn post office burned down that night and, and i just recently was found out where they, they transferred all my stuff to, like all these months later uh it's just yeah sick i think I, I think that's how you mentioned i think you saw you mentioned that yeah, yeah. you had a picture of the post office it was like oh man but, that sucks. But All the right. neighborhood defense, know, you know, just, just wrapping on neighborhood defense, it's, um, you know, you're, you have to figure out what's your primary goal with that. Are you protecting your family, your home, or are you trying to get out ahead of this stuff with other people and develop information and put up a, a, a defensive group? Are you taking an openly defensive posture with that long gun, that, that shotgun or AR strapped across your chest, you know, and do your other neighbors appreciate that or are they against that because i can tell you a lot of people who fought highly one another now hate each other and are afraid of each other because they saw people out there standing around openly carrying long guns you know they're like well i didn't know you were one of these gun you know these bloodthirsty baby killers you know with your gun you know i didn't know you were that kind of person yeah well, on the flip side you know they're like well i didn't know you were the person who you know supported an insurgency coming to our neighborhood it's just it gets ugly really fast but uh yeah, it comes down to like who do who do you know, who do you trust, and are you on the same page, and, and do you communicate that well? That's really the neighborhood defense stuff. Yeah, that's that's so important, and yeah, that's one of the things you there's there's so much prep, and I keep telling people it's like this this is prep that needs to be done beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I feel like the tension and drama in America is not remotely done. No, um, God, no I think no. you know you know I, I don't I think we're going back to like. Yeah. to 19 you know early 2000s happy go lucky america <laughs> tomorrow or anything so and i see this you know i see it people um starting to organize these groups these mutual you know this mutual aid mm-hmm. groups um which is mutual assistance group kind of the same Mag. thing um <laughs> yeah. le- le- lefties lefties call them mutual aid groups and it's kind of yeah. you know very idea of people let's we know each other. Let's get together and let's help each other and get prepared. And I see people doing this, and it's so important to have that ahead of time because you don't want when the city's on fire, you don't want to be trying to suss out who you can trust. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know who's got what, and figure out who your neighbor is. Um, that's a, a, a really good point. You know, like you that you brought up in this one. I keep harping on. Um, and and, the, and an interesting thing too, and, and it seems like. The, the the climate and the political and legal legal climate we have in the country right now has not really adapted to the idea of there can be periods where there is you know diminished rule of law like you yeah. said you know we DRL. have everything mm-hmm. yeah there, there's kind of an implicit assumption that 
well, the cops will come when you call them, you know, here are the rules for, for this. And people need to think about that because, you know, it's, I used to, you know, I've heard it called anarcho tyranny. Yeah. By the way, I'm stealing that term from you, Aaron. So if if you came up and I'm stealing it from you. I I actually didn't didn't deny it was, it's an older term, but, but no, feel free to use it. It was from, from Sam Francis came up with it, but it's a really useful term and I've seen it, you know, anarcho tyranny. It's something that you saw like in San Francisco where, you know, in San Francisco, you see people smoking crack on the street and like, you can do whatever you want. Like there's so much insane stuff, criminal activity, like in San Francisco, that happens in the open and no one does anything, you know, so it's effectively illegal. But if, you know, if you're one of the people that if the eye of Sauron comes upon you and you're someone who <laughs> is now unpopular with the powers that be, you know, they can, you know, crush you because you you know, you could do whatever you want. Like I one time was in down in the Tenderloin, um, like, like 2 a.m. or something, you know, we were out there partying and coming back and just whatever. And, and I saw there's on Turk street, like there's all the street, Mm -hmm. the street drugs, mostly for tourists and stuff. Um, yeah. Anyone in San Francisco that wants to get drugs has, has a dealer on signal. (laughs) No one, no one does buy street drugs, (laughs) but yeah, you know, it's mostly tourists and you can see all the cars lined up down in Turk and there's like four cars lined up, you know, and like, they're just, it's like a drive through it, like at McDonald's and the cop car pulls behind them and, they just drive around and keep going, you know, and you'll see stuff like that. It's insane. Um, yeah, it's, it's like when a shark but, swims up in a little school of fish, you know, and they kind of break apart, you know, and the yeah. shark goes past and they all reassemble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was funny. It was like the cars didn't even move. Like the cars just sat there and the guys kept dealing. The cop car drove around them and kept going. I was like, that is like the most San Francisco tenderloin thing I've ever seen. But, you know, and this is something like, again, you know, it, it, getting back to that we – off the tangent back to the uh-huh. diminished rule of law. It's like people need to understand and think like, yeah, you want to, the city's on fire. You want to barricade. You instinctively want to barricade your neighborhood, but you know, be aware of what the law is mm-hmm. because there may be some blowback on it. Like there may be a case where you could say, fuck the law. We're going to barricade it regardless. And maybe, but that's a balancing act. You have to be aware of what the law yeah. is and what you can technically get away with and what you can argue with later in court that you had to do, given the circumstances, mitigating circumstances. Yeah. And most people aren't aware of that. They, they need to think like, you know, you need to connect with your people and you need to like think through like wargame this stuff. Like, okay, if my city's on fire, you know, can I legally block, what can I legally block off? Do I know who I can trust? It's like, what's going to be my argument if something happens, you know, it's, um, like the McCloskeys, for example, yes. I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, that's, that's because, you know, the, we've seen it in this country, you know, politically oriented, like it, it's unfortunate, like there, there's very clear bias depending on, you know, where you are, like, and it goes both ways, you know, you see it all over. It's like, we have to admit the legal system's made up of people and people have biases Yeah, and some of them are way more at it than others, way more biased than others. Um, there's so many factors that go into that, you know, and I, I think people need to think about that a lot well, more. And who are going to, who are going to be the, your witnesses, you know, were those people yeah. who, were those witnesses stand with you or they stand against you? It, you know, it, it depends too, because things are so fluid and, um, you know, what was the, your, the preclusion of your, your mind before you did whatever yeah. when you set up those barricades or when you went out there with a loaded rifle and stood at the end of your driveway to deter whoever uh more likely you're going to attract <laughs> trouble than you are deterring it I, I can just tell you this from seeing that uh 
uh, you know, this, this whole term gray man is really kicked around a lot, but there's some truth to that. The, the thing is, is that those witnesses who might be for you may see you do something they don't understand or disagree with. And it's caught on film. Everything's on video. You just have to assume you're going to be on video. Um, and you only see like a snippet of it. You don't see everything there. You're not feeling the temperature of the air. You're not smelling what they're smelling. You're not feeling what they're feeling. You don't, you don't have that three-dimensional immersed gravity. You just saw like, you know, video clip and video doesn't tell you everything. It's a piece of the story, right? But those witnesses could very well, one minute they're your ally. Next minute they're like, why the hell did you do X, Y, and Z? That was brutal and terrible. It's like, well, um, the law says this and this is my reaction to it. Or you did something and you're like, hey, that was illegal what you did, man. And I cannot stand here and lie and purging myself at this, you know, you know, now that you're going to court for, you know, something that you did and you're criminally being charged for. And yeah, you were thinking cover your ass, CYA, but what you, what you weren't thinking of was the other CYA. Can you articulate why you did what you did? You know? Yeah. Yeah, that too. I mean, too, it's, it's you know, there's also the social pressure factor. Yeah. Like maybe the person was someone that was good with it at the time. And like, you know, if you can end up being subject to something like cancel culture, they may be like, oh no, I disavowed this person. I've seen this person like so many times in different areas where someone who's down with something later disavows something because they're like, oh, holy shit, this person's not radioactive. And I, I, it's so, <laughs> it's yeah. so, un, you know, unfortunate how this stuff happens. It's like, we, we can't, you know, when the wheels are coming off civil, like, unfortunately, the legal system doesn't really have much leeway for when the wheels come off society, you know, and there's no police and you're having to, like, try to hold things together. And so we're, we're there, there's that interplay where the intersection between the exigencies of the moment, what you have to do to try to protect your people and society mm-hmm. and, you know, your neighborhood, your family and, and what the law may imagine, you know, the implicit assumptions of what the law has. And, you know, people are getting jammed up for that, you know, and it's 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 something people have to really think about because it, it, it applies. I've, I've been dealing, you know, I've been involved with activism like street activism especially like in the bay area since like 2016 so i i've been in so many things that turned out to be declared a riot or civil unrest or something and you have to really think about that stuff beforehand you know people that have not thought about it now have to because it's something it's it's everyone's could happen anywhere you know and you know it's interesting too with that like what your individual identity and values are with the group identity and values you know and I think at the root of it is like, exactly. what, what are we individually benefiting from the, the group that you're in? Is it protection? Is it a, you know, mutual assistance or mutual aid? It's interesting that that whole aid versus assistance. Assistance sounds to me like, okay, we're individuals, but we come together as this group to mutually assist one another. And then we go back to our little individual things after we're done being activated. And aid is, well, this is somebody who's in need too. And it's weird how they change it. Just one word can kind of change the meaning or who who is using that. True. It's just rather interesting in, in how that applies to like identity. I, you know, I, and I look at this like with um, it, it's it's so easy to look for a boogeyman. Like when you think like twenty years ago, now you know we're hunting Al Qaeda. Well, who's now an Al Qaeda? And everybody has this archetype in their mind of what that boogeyman or Al Qaeda looks like. You know, it's they look like somebody who is from you know southwest asia right and they have a beard and they have all these these physical attributes and they're doing these you know it's very cartoonish really i tell you know i, and I teach like firearms classes defensive firearms classes and, and self-defense and i tell students that listen 
do not have an archetype of a boogeyman in your mind that you may end up being in a lethal encounter with. Because you might be picturing somebody who, you know, pull up a picture of somebody in black, black garb. You might be picturing that. What you might actually have is, you know, a 13-year-old pulling a gun on you while you're sitting in a stop sign. Like we're seeing now in South Minneapolis, that kind of segue into that, that diminished rule of law. Uh, without rule of law, WROL, we hear that said a lot in the preparedness community, uh, but diminished rule of law, you know, we're seeing that in, in Minneapolis now where we had to hold the fund, the police, and that rhetoric is powerful because now, you know, we've had a lot of our officers go on disability leave. We've had a ton of attrition quitting. Uh, now we have all the, the retirements. They're, they're buying those people out just because it's cheaper. And uh, on top of that, it's hard to recruit people anyway into, into the business. But now we have... In that place, we have just, you know, gangs of, of, you know, youth armed up and they're getting more organized, more sophisticated. Their level of violence and intensity is going up. And, you know, the, the community doesn't feel like, well, okay, there's no, there's nobody to protect us and there's nobody shutting them down. You have prosecutors who, uh, up until maybe a day or two ago, were not going after these people. We had recently a case where a 76-year-old elderly Somali woman was robbed at gunpoint, shot twice, beaten with the gun. The gun was broken by a 21-year-old woman who then robbed her of her, her $900 rent money. And this is like three weeks ago, almost a month ago now, and that individual is now out on bail. And they recovered the, the evidence, the broken gun that wow. she used to shoot and beat this 76-year-old woman with. And she, this person's out on the street now on, on bail, you know, on low bail or no bail, right? And um, because we're trying to do bail reform and which because, well, that's fine and all um, until you put proven dangerous people on the street. And then, yes, innocent to proven guilty. But somebody who sits there and tells <laughs> it confesses without, you know, and you don't talk without your lawyer present. I'm just going to say that. OK, I don't know that ain't exactly legal advice. It's just should be common sense. But but putting, you know, having somebody that dangerous back on the street, you know, and, and I can tell you this, having been a corrections officer for years and years. Uh, places or prisons are filled with people who made a bad decision with limited choices, did it once. There are some truly evil people in there. There's not many of those, fortunately. There's more good people than, than bad. And, and then there's the mentally people who are mentally ill that, like, that's the best that the state's going to do is put them in a prison. But not to digress from that much, but the the vacuum that you're seeing is where what steps up and replaces that when there's not officers out patrolling and deterring crime, you know, on my own corner, um, back in August, we have an unsolved murder. I live in actually pretty nice, quiet, well-kept area of the community, but, uh, it, uh, you know, and, and it, there's just no information being shared about this. Most likely it was a gang shooting. Um, but, uh, now I start watching like crime watch groups on Facebook and signal and citizen app, you know, all this stuff. And the stuff is interesting. It's, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, sort of to hear the, the fake news and, you know, and, and disinformation, but uh, you have to discern that stuff. But, but the, but the thing now is I'm starting to see more people just spout off on social media. Well, we should have vigilante groups go after these gangs and these thugs and all this. And I'm like, you know, Slow your roll because who are they? Have you positively identified them? Could you stand there with a jury in court if you caught them and, and, and we're going to prosecute them? Or are you just going to do street prosecution? And if you do understand that, are you going to own that? If you do that, break the law and commit vigilante justice, right? Vigilante violence. Or are you going to 
go all, you know, fantasy world superhero mask up because everybody's got to wear a mask these days and do an anonymous, you know, form of street justice, right? Like out of a damn comic book. Um, and understand that when you do that, there's going to be a response to it either from the community or from those individuals because, you know, you might be righteous in what you're doing by law, uh, but, the, but you have to answer for it. There will be consequences. And the other thing is like, these people are putting out this stuff with their name on social media, it's out there forever. And they're like, well, that's discovery evidence later on against you if something happens, right? Yeah. So I get that you're, I get you're upset. I really understand your frustration, your fear and all that. But like, you have got to have cooler head about this, man. Cause you know, step outside this for a minute, your day-to-day life really ain't too bad. Um, you want to keep living even, even the crappy life you think you have. That's actually a lot better than what it could be. I, you know, but it's, but, yeah. but you know, it's what fills that vacuum, you know? And so now we're looking like, okay, well, where there's the alternative social services and alternative economy, you know, um, from, you know, the street pharmacist all the way up to the, uh, you know, the, the, yeah. you know, the, the medical van driving around doing the free clinic, you know, in the neighborhood, um, you know, uh, well now it's like, well, what do we have for protective stuff? You know, what do we have for a police force? And like, well, you're it, you always were it. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court decided years ago that, hey, yeah, the police have no constitutional legal obligation to protect you. That's your responsibility. Their, their only job really is to deliver accused offenders, suspects, to be heard before a magistrate. Arrest them, take them, book them, take them to a judge. You know, uh, that's it. You know, and so the, yeah. the, the, the whole protect part, well, I don't know about that. The serve part, yeah, that's where, you know, people people think protection with the police, but what they really don't talk much about is the service and i think that's the sea change in law enforcement because when i was coming up in this little 25 years ago was you know we were coming out of the la riots and we had rodney king and then it was funny because we had oj that happened so the la riots kind of influenced okay we got to get back to community policing stuff not be so militaristic Uh, a lot of stuff we saw in the 60s and 70s we were starting to see that this funny stuff comes around every 20 25 years it's very cyclical and then we had like the the, the OJ case. And it was like, okay, well, the cases are won or lost based on 95% physical evidence. And then we had the North Hollywood shootout. Okay, well, now we have people out there who have access to, you know, tactics and military arms and the public's at risk. And why can't the police protect us from this? Like, well, because we have certain liberties that don't exactly butt up. You have to decide, are you going to give up the freedom, the security, that old cliche, that Ben Franklin cliche of, I'm actually looking at the quote right now. Any society that would give up a little liberty to gain, a little security will deserve neither and lose both. Well, um, again, what are you going to, you know, if you think about it tactically, what are you going to gain or, or lose, you know, by what you're going to subscribe to, um, what, what you're going to adapt? And those those community um, defense models, it's, again, it's if, if somebody is involved in those, it's like, okay, clearly define what your parameters are what you know what your legal parameters are because if you want to do stuff above the board and be righteous about it and be protected by the law and the jury appears it's like then you need to bone up on that stuff if you don't know then go seek out a lawyer who understands that or a civil you know self-defense lawyer or uh the practice the the implementation of that as well you know are you proficient in doing that because you know it's uh uh, this isn't a coin a term. I, I I don't want to name the person who came up with this term, but it but it's true. Is you know your police soldier, um, prison guard, security guard, whatever, is a violence worker, right? <laughs> Applied violence worker, yeah. right? Somebody is going to do this on yeah. your behalf so that you can 
sit there and sleep in your bed at night and be tucked in. But, but the expectation of that service is what do we want our cops to do? And I don't mean to go into the whole law enforcement reform thing, but, but this is just to get anybody to understand that. Yeah. When you pick that phone up to call 911, when you expect that check that you have with the government that you can cash it in and all of a sudden huh, funds are deficient because it uh, turn, turns out they legally don't have a right to do that. And they sold, they sold you that bill of goods for the taxes they were charging for that service. Well, what did you expect from that service? Did you want them to, to go there and be a counselor and, you know, a NASCAR driver uh, getting to the 911 call and you expect them to be, you know, an IDPA, you know, champion shooter and you expect them to be an MMA fighter, right? You expect them to have this high yeah. level of standard. And it's like, well, in the meantime, they're trying to get there as fast as they can with all this stuff. But I can tell you what it's like to live in a place where you call 911, you can't even get the paramedics to show up if somebody's having a heart attack because they're not going to show up without police escort. Having the fire department come in and they want to put out that structure fire, but there's no police or state troopers there to give them security. Um, and having people come up from the neighborhood and say, hey, you guys go ahead and start putting the fire out. We'll, we'll protect you from any anybody who comes in and interferes with you. And you have neighbors standing out there with ball bats and you know, and shovels, and a couple of yeah. deer rifles, or you know, maybe a handgun and a few pocket knives. And there was one guy apparently was walking around with a lacrosse stick defending the neighborhood. So, <laughs> <laughs> apparently, one one neighbor saw him and said, "You know what? When this is over, we're going to have to sit down and have coffee and talk about this." <laughs> yeah, but, um, it's what you yeah. see in Mexico, even you know, um, and and that can turn into its whole other overblown, corrupted dynamic. You know, that the defensive force can now become the problem you know it's it's just tribalism really it's yeah it's 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 really interesting um it's such a such a complex interplay of factors when you think about it i mean and the thing is uh, i don't want to have to defend the neighborhood i'd rather a i'd rather i'd rather have to i'd rather I'd much prefer people like behave yeah. on their own, yeah. you know, um, and respect each other and have that social connection and bond where they're like, I'm not going to go mess with their stuff, you know, because, or even someone, you know, just that basic borderline, you know, that basic level of human, what we've come to expect is, is just human yeah. behavior um, in, in a civilized society. I, I, I don't want to have to do that, but if I, if it, because if people don't behave if it's if it's some type of issue i prefer to have some objective force that will come handle that for me and i hate to see it like in a case where now we're having to think like okay i have neither of those options you know i'm going to have to start i mean granted you know cops can't be everywhere we're both applied violence people you know we both studied and practiced Mm -hmm. this stuff we understand that that's really kind of illusory in a sense but there needs to be like at least some belief that there'll be an attempt, you know, and I feel like a big thing, what really drove this year, a lot of stuff was the lockdown stuff. There was so much insanity mm-hmm. and the cops were used kind of to enforce a bunch of ridiculous rules. And it was a big thing on social media of, you know, arresting people for like surfboarding on an empty yeah. beach and stuff like just it's insanity. <laughs> and there's, yeah, yeah, just there's that sort of stuff, but like that was a big part of it. And there's also the thing where now I feel like, especially after Minneapolis, like I've seen, I've seen this up close for a few years now, so it didn't shock me. Like cops are really don't run the city, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, a lot of their power is illusory. It's the sense of like you can, if you bring enough dudes, you can do whatever the hell you want. I've seen that yeah. so many times, and then it seems like 2020 was the year the whole country finally remembered yeah. that fact. 
Um, you know, and, and once third precinct caught on fire, it felt like everyone else went out. Like, it's like, fuck this, let's go burn shit. You know, it just felt like every, you know, the, the, the wheels came off because everyone kind of realized how little power the cops really have. Like I've seen riot cops break and run from, from black oh, yeah. block before, you know, cause yeah. they were just outnumbered, yeah. you know, if you bring enough people and you know, you can, and I've done this before, like organizing events, if you have enough people, like I've seen people, you know, the organizers of other events too, if they had a shit ton of people and the cops are like, we need you to do this. And the, and the person's like, we're not going to do that. You know, we're going to do this and, you know, we'll be peaceful, but we're going to do this. And the cops are like, okay. You know, like the guys, the guys sitting there, you can watch the little, like, it's usually a captain. It's usually like the scene commander. And then you see the little wheel start turning in his head. And he's like, well, well, you know, I can't stop them from doing that. If I try to, it's going to be a mess. So the, they'll give you what you want. You know, you can, you can, if you ever been to any type of civil unrest, you can usually mm-hmm. watch before it turns into a crazy riot. You know, you can really kind of watch that the cops are, are very aware that they can only push so hard. Yeah. Um, but you know, we've had like how many how many police stations burned this year? Like half a dozen or something. Or where they were locked inside, you know, um, know, the building. And and I and I remember reading yeah. you know, the the one interview you did where um, where you know they said, well, okay, you know, the person chose to work inside that building. Tough for them. It's like, well, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> that was actually family, yeah. That was man. Nancy. You know, not, that was. Yeah, yeah, that was actually Nancy yeah. Rommelman, one the one. She was the one who wrote my wrote my um did my interview for Reason. She wrote another piece about someone else there in Portland. Mm-hmm. I remember that the the woman um I actually have her name. The person that she was talking about that was inside the building. I actually remember I, I have her name, but it's escaped me, and I wouldn't say it on the on the air even if I did. But but yeah, no, it's crazy stuff. Like you said, you, <laughs> you know, know, it's like this this. This year, it felt like you know that we have a, we have like a hollow state in the sense of like the government's limitations are apparent to everyone. The you know a lot of stuff I reference that I do my comparisons to of you know society and you know how the whole human dynamic, all that stuff, uh, is based on prison. You know um, because it, you look yeah. at it, it's, it's a it's a it's almost it's like a city in there. You have a barbershop, you have a medical, you have you know, uh, retail. Hell, you have your own Amazon in that place. It's called the, the canteen, right? Uh, you have people who come visit you. Uh, sometimes you take a vacation, you know, and go to segregation or or to the mental health unit, <laughs> right? Um, you know, you oh, have yeah. all these things. You have your own discipline, your own justice system in there. There's court in there. Um, you know, that you, you can, there, there's all these things that you have on the outside. It's very limited. Um, it's it's just a step below probably like what folks live with in North Korea only but with a few more human rights being you know uh, being protected but the the whole thing with policing that because I can tell you it, it's it's funny I you know I had the privilege of going out and training with all these um, you know top drawer law enforcement to special operations military guys I've you know that I've gotten training under or trained alongside of or am friends with. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, doing safe house raids overseas or, well, they, they really, in vague terms, they don't talk to you about specifics or uh, going out and serving, you know, 40 high risk warrants in, in a couple of days uh, with a SWAT team on drug houses and, you know, all that stuff. And just the level of, of danger. I was like, well, you are all proactive to that. Even the officer on the street patrol, you know, you're kind of a marked target driving around in a squad car, but you can get a lot of heavy resources to come in and deal with those 
handful of individuals. It's a little bit different though when you're suddenly outnumbered. And now I said, uh, you know, I'd speak of like, well, I, you know, when I was in the job, I said, well, I'm a corrections officer in a maximum security prison. They all just like, I couldn't do that job, man. Uh, I, you know, I couldn't. How the how do you do that? Like, yeah. what do you mean, walk into a building outnumbered, unarmed, in charge, and I've got to sell no to a lot of guys who have come in if they weren't killers or they're they're well trained ones now. Well. Um, it's all in how we do the social contract. And that's what it turns into on the outside is like that social contract. It's broken. You know, the moment someone's sticking a gun in your face, robbing you for your, your property or your body or your freedom or your life. Um, but there really is that thin veneer of society and civility. Right. And we expect that thin blue line to keep that thin veneer, you know, nice and polished and hardened to keep us protected from who the bad guys are. But it's like, well, who are the bad guys, you know, and all this. And, and that that thing is that I hate that term sheepdog, by the way. I really hate that one. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It, it's I like, too, okay, I I'm a sheepdog. I'm like, oh, so, okay, so you're you're protecting, you know, you degraded people to the to a level of, of prey and not as a fellow human being. And you're going to protect them yeah. for what? So that, you know, they can be sheared and sold and slaughtered later. <laughs> I, I hate that stuff. <laughs> it's like, no, you're another dangerous human being, just like the person you're scared of. You have that in you too you know um but yeah it's, you know and, and i it, that's me quoting uh i don't know if you know varg freeborn who wrote uh violence of mine but yeah that's oh yeah yeah yeah, I, I yeah, know varg. yeah you know varg yeah and if anybody out there listening to this doesn't you know read the book violence of mind um very good education and a lot of valuable knowledge in that he's got a plug for varg he, so he definitely has a yeah definitely varg freeborn is someone you want to listen to he has a very unique yeah. background too well, I should say unique means very. It's a, unique means unique and very unique. I mean, I, I hate it when people say that. And I actually mm-hmm. did it, but he has a unique background and uh, and insight into you know definitely violent actors. I mean, he was in prison very, for very a while. Very credible and authentic. Got... Yeah, that's well. And, yeah, you know that's that's so, just anything. It's like why will someone listen to you know some like you or him or myself or anyone else? It's like yeah, you have the certification and something. Okay, that's great and all. But when you actually have the experience and you can formalize and tell that story of your experience in a way that somebody is receiving that, like, okay, now I can place myself in that. How how would I, what did I learn from their experience? It's basically, it's a debriefing. It's what firefighters do at the end of a fire, stand around and, okay, what did you see? We all saw the same thing, but from a different angle. And everybody picks up a little note of something that they they saw at the same incident, you know, the same fire. We do that in, you know, in corrections work, if we had to go, you know, extract a guy who was stabbing himself, or hurting himself, or two guys fighting, or whatever it was. You do a debrief afterwards, and and that's kind of what we are: is we're we're doing a debrief for people who weren't there, but but see the value and that they could see themselves in that situation. Well, how would I handle that? Like, well, based on the history of what these people went through, you know, um, but what's their credibility? Like, well, they lived there and did it, and they didn't do anything too crazy. They kind of did stuff that was sort of normal and rational. At least we hope they did. Or if they did something irrational. How would they have done it different, made, you know, better decisions? And now you kind of, your experience increases, you know, eight, ninefold, however many, you know, narrators you're listening to. I'm, I'm totally quoting something from um, the book, Making It Stick by Chippin' uh, Dan Heath. <laughs> Read that book out there. <laughs> but but that's the whole process of like, even like what we're doing here, this thing, you know, it's, it's a debrief. Um, you know, people are going to listen to our, our story and like, well, what's our credibility? Well, well, we, we lived in the middle of this stuff and here's why we lived in the middle of this stuff and did this stuff. Let me just say that information is going to be your most valuable resource in anything. Um, 
you know, whether you're triaging a, a medical wound or you're, you know, dealing with a legal situation, you need to have all the information. Um, if it's civil unrest and, and, you know, potential riots and uh, like we're, we're concerned about now, uh, which is the theme of this, um, knowing, you know, what's going on in your area, how are your neighbors, do you even know your neighbors? You know, do you have so many neighbors in your apartment building, you don't even know who they are, but do you at least know the immediate ones around you on your floor and the neighboring units? Um, you know, that, that type of thing. I've, I've lived where I'm at now, going on 12 years next week. And there were people I had seen in passing and I got to know them, but under a crisis, are you going to get to know them in that time? The other thing is like, oh, and I really harp on the mainstream media, but for good reason, but you know, you have to take this stuff with a grain of salt. Is that information they're putting out? Are you vetting it with other sources? And do you see some consistent facts showing up or a consistent statement made over and over? Uh, that information, but also developing your own information. If you are on the receiving end of any um, assistance groups or anything like that, like, like I said, you know, like the door-to-door medical teams or anything like that, what everybody's got an agenda. I don't care how objective they, they mean to be or are or doing this out of the goodness of their heart. Yeah, I'll go out and help my enemies. You still have an agenda. What's that person's agenda? If it is, okay, I'm trying to restore things back the way they were, or I'm trying to, you know, fill, fill this, stand this gap of, you know, whatever it is, you really question that stuff. So um, again, it's developing your own uh, human intelligence, human, uh, they call it over there in the military. Um that that's the one thing I would say is is uh, have good information as far as any preparation goes. You know, the, the people think about like right away. Okay, bug out kits, bug out, bug, bug in, bug out. Likely you're going to be bugging in unless you have somewhere to bug out to. When to bug out? I can tell you. You know, I can look at my own seminar on that or the book I'm working on uh, about what my own experience was with my family was on that. Um, you have to think about like, okay, you're bugging out permanently or are you going to plan on coming back? Um, and you have to, in, in the third thing is just be honest with your own capabilities, your own limitations, you know, and don't exceed them, um, without a plan or, or something in place. Uh, don't, don't, you know, have this fantasy in your mind. You're going to rise to the occasion, and do all this stuff, unless you've already tested that out ahead of time, you know, and drilled that, you know, there's, there's a reason why they do dry runs as fire departments, you know, say, okay, uh, how long does it take us to hook up this hose and all this stuff? Okay. Now let's do it in the dark with, you know, people fleeing out of the building on fire and screaming and we've gotten all these people involved. And now we just lost in time because we, you know, real, the real situation is happening and all these factors we didn't plan for weren't there. Um, so again, be realistic. And also it's like, figure out what is your goal? What, you know, are you just responding to some emergency thrown at you? Or are you trying to maintain and reestablish a, a continuity of your own life and business, you know? Because that's, honestly, that's really what anybody should be focusing on, not just like, okay, well, I'm focusing on changing the flat tire. Okay, why is that important? Well, because I need to keep the car going. Okay, so then your goal is to keep the car going, the flat tire come up, so you're prepared for that, right? Did you, you kind of get my point with that, I believe, but um, yeah. Yeah. Um, It's, you know, there's all the coolness factor, all the stuff that's sold to you and you can buy, you know, there's a whole industry and I'm not going to begrudge that, but. I think it really comes down to having knowledge and skills and learn to have good judgment in any of this and, and having good information, be able to discern that is going to be your, that's going to be your, your greatest resource in any of this stuff. 
because uh, how are you going to know how to respond or react or what resources or tools to deploy unless you really know what's going on and how directly are you affected by that or not affected by that, you know. Um, and time and distance are your friends in these things. <laughs> um, yeah, I, my heart was broken by people who could not leave those areas, you know, and had to live in the middle of this stuff. They literally, because, you know, they're bound to a wheelchair and they're, you know, all their, their life support apparatuses inside their home and the people coming in to care for them, you know, home care aides couldn't come to them because it's such a dangerous area. It's like, you can't just, you know, couldn't just lift those people up out and take them to safety. It just, or people who just had no money, no car, no way to get out of here. And they had to like shelter in place in the middle of all this stuff. And um, that, you know, so there, there, that whole quote that, that, that word privilege really has something that um, there's, there's something to that, but also it's, um, it's trying to see what is trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes and really have, I think empathy would be the other thing is like trying to understand, you know, quote, know your enemy, right? Um, or what's the Abraham yeah. Lincoln quote to destroy an enemy? You make him your friend. Mm. Uh, you don't have to be friends with them, but at least be empathetic to understand them. So um, that's kind of my big, you know, kumbaya on that. But um, but thus far, I have I can say it's, it's kept a, a professional violence worker here from ever having to use any violence that wasn't too keep somebody from hurting themselves at least. <laughs> right. Um, you know, <laughs> but you know, how proactive you want to be, uh, and are you being proactive in, in a, in the right way, you know? Um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much my, my two cents on how to prepare for any of that stuff. It's just, uh, knowledge and skills. I had a really good discussion with Mike. In fact, this was the longest, podcast I've done yet two big lessons that I personally took away the first thing is as I've harped on many times before community is important and it's important to build community before the emergency happens because you need to know who you can trust and who is willing to work with you and back you up if needed another thing that I took away was Mike's concept of diminished rule of law DROL which is rather distinct from without rule of law, WROL, which is something you see thrown around a lot in certain internet forums and, you know, fiction maybe. And, and it's very similar to, to what I've talked about before of anarcho-tyranny, which is the legal system is not functional, but that doesn't mean that you may not be called to account down the road for something that you did when there was not of functional security services or law enforcement that will respond to your call for aid. This sort of ties into building your community before the emergency happens because you not only need to think about, okay, what will my state and local laws allow me to do if there is unrest and no one is able to respond to calls for aid, but also think like who will back me up and who will support whatever decision we have to make to protect ourselves. It's, you know, it's, it's rarely you're going to find codified in legal codes. Okay, yeah, if the, if, the, if the civilization collapses for this period of time, you can do X, Y, and Z. It's, it's, it's not really explicit like that. So you're going to want to actually think about that. Like, what will my law, my local laws allow me to do if the cops stop responding? You know, what am, what am I, what is my risk profile? What am I willing to do under certain circumstances? I mean... Like we discussed, um, closing off the neighborhoods, there was people who were doing that, 
and that's fairly legally questionable but depending on the circumstances you may or may not decide to do something similar to that just it, that's going to be a judgment call but you need to know who's going to back you up if you have to do that and under what what is the risk profile of doing that sort of action depending on you know it's it's going to be a, a judgment call and you have to think about that and it would help ahead of time to war game that sort of thing like okay what can i do who's going to back me what sort of things what does the law allow me to do what's what's kind of where can i push where's the gray area where, where are things flexible you know it's going to be very hard to have a flow chart of exactly everything you're going to do so there's always going to be some squishy judgment calls along the way but it, it, just thinking about it and trying to war game some ideas of, of everything like that what you're personally willing to do who's going to back you for certain things you know who you can depend on who's not dependable you're going to be ahead of 99 percent of the people out there just to be clear i'm not a lawyer none of this is legal advice but even if i were i still wouldn't give you any advice because personally your risk tolerance is going to be way different from mine i mean i once swam through a flooding engine room on a sinking tug to close a valve and i've also been undercover in antipo when they set a police station on fire and got flashbang by the cops so my risk tolerance is probably a little bit different from yours and even besides that legal climates and legal codes vary so much that you're gonna to have to do all this research yourself but i at least want to bring it up to you you need to do it Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Contextual Insurgent Podcast. I hope you found this information interesting and useful and look forward to bringing you more content in the future. Take care. Mm-hmm.